Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Laura Hilton and Avi Noam Pat on the show. Laura teaches at Muskingum in Ohio and Avi at uh, the University of Connecticut. And together, they are the editors of a rich new collection of essays. It's it's essays directed at, at high school and university teachers who are teaching units or courses on the Holocaust. Uh, there are a few of these, um, and and this one is excellent. And it's an important new work and, and one that will be valuable to anyone who's who's preparing to teach uh, uh, the subject, uh, whether that's in high school or university. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Laura, Avi, welcome. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for organizing. So we'll start out the way we always do uh, and ask each of you to introduce yourselves just a little bit to the audience. So maybe say a little bit about who you are and, and how you became uh, interested in um in the subject of the Holocaust. So Laura, I'll ask you to go first and then Avi can continue after that. Certainly, I'm a professor of history at Muskingum University in New Concord, Ohio. I've been there since the fall of 2001. And when I arrived at Muskingum, there was not a permanent course on the Holocaust that was in the curriculum. So one of the things I did in my first year there was propose a course and had it added into uh, the history department curriculum. And for a time, it was also in our gen ed in terms of our moral inquiry category. And I should say for full disclosure, Laura and I uh, were colleagues at Ohio State where we both studied in, in graduate school just a couple years ago or something like that. Um, Avi, what about you? Yeah, thanks. So I am the uh, director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life at the University of Connecticut, where I also serve as the Doris and Simon Conover Chair of Judaic Studies. And uh, this is a a subject that I've been involved with uh, for my entire academic career, uh, the history of the Holocaust and studying Jewish responses to the Holocaust I've been in Connecticut since 2007, and before I came here, I was a 
historian, uh, the applied research scholar for Jewish life and culture at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Mm -hmm. which is actually where I had the first chance to uh, work together with Laura uh, several years ago when we uh, uh, were uh, collaborating in a workshop together on Jewish displaced persons after the Holocaust. And much of my research and writing has focused on Jewish DPs, displaced persons after the war, but I also look at Jewish responses to persecution during and after the Second World War. So we were chatting before this started, and and so it seems, based on that discussion, maybe I should ask Laura to to talk about how this book came about. Why, Why do we have this book now? It's part of a larger series put out by the University of Wisconsin Press, And at this point, I think they have seven or eight volumes that are out. They've just recently uh, published one in the last couple of weeks on understanding and teaching uh, the Middle East. And I think the intent of this series is really to bridge a gap between the excellent and very rich scholarship that is going on um, at the university level And then getting that scholarship and ways to really bring it to a variety of different classrooms at either the college or university level or at the high school level. And so it is in the the idea, the spirit of this, how do we get the richness of scholarship into the hands, into the minds, into the classrooms of people who want to be able to learn about the topic, but also how best to teach it to their students. Um, and I don't know how, how other people feel about this, but there's a wistfulness in terms of being in a graduate seminar where you sit down and discuss 10 or 12 books with other people who are interested in discussing those books. And once you graduate and you go off to wherever it is uh, your next life brings you, you don't have that opportunity to reimmerse and to learn. And sometimes that can be a little bit isolating. And I think this book is something that can bridge that gap. So Avi, um, Laura's given a really interesting description of the, the book and the series. How did the two of you end up involved in this? And how did this contribute to kind of your own background as, as somebody interested in the Holocaust and Jewish life? Sure. So um, first, I just want to say that uh, to, to echo you know Laura's point about how critical this volume is and the timing of this volume is, but also how grateful we are to the University of Wisconsin Press Mm -hmm. to be able to contribute to this excellent series, the Harvey Goldberg series for understanding and teaching history. And it's really an honor to be able to edit something together for that series. And I'm grateful for, to Laura for inviting me to, uh, to, to, to work on this project together. You know, one of the, the points on this volume, as, as Laura indicated, that's, so important is it's this goal of bridging the gap between scholarship and teaching in the classroom. And in the introduction, we talk about, you know, how much uh, the Holocaust is being taught on um, both the undergraduate level and on the high school and middle school level, but also this fundamental need to bridge that gap between what we see as the excellent scholarship that's happening in the academy and trying to bring that scholarship to teachers across all levels who are interested in teaching this critical topic. And here we are 75 years after the end of the Second World War, and we're living through the passing of the survivor generation and the last eyewitnesses. And we know that uh, surveys indicate just how fundamental and how important people believe it is to have this topic taught 
but at the same time, there seems to be a gap between bringing that cutting edge research that's being done, uh, bringing that scholarship that's being done into classrooms and having this critical topic being taught well. And so I particularly was grateful to, to Laura for inviting me to join her in this project and really being able to think together about who are the contributors that we want to be able to invite to both do the two parts of this volume, the what are the the topics, the new research on critical topics in the history of the Holocaust that teachers should be introduced to, and who are the excellent pedagogues who know how to do this and how to do it well and to use those critical sources to teach it. And I just have to say that I'm so excited about how this volume came together. I think it's just an outstanding, if I, if I may say so myself, mm-hmm. it's an outstanding collection of scholars and teachers uh, who have come together to contribute to this volume. And we're so grateful to all the contributors for their excellent contributions. So, so the logical place to start is the introduction. Um, and one of the things you do in the introduction um, is, is to suggest kinds of questions that teachers might think about as they prepare to teach this, whether it's a course or a, a day or a unit or whatever. So, so Avi, I'll ask you to start. What advice do you have for teachers who are listening to this um, in terms of how they might think about how to conceptualize and teach this kind of a course or subject? So one thing that I'll say, and and uh, I'll mention right off the bat that you know I'm in I'm in Connecticut and I've been here for um, almost the past fifteen years, and over that time I've become very involved in in creating Holocaust education workshops uh, first at the University of Hartford where I was, and now at the University of Connecticut for teachers around the state who are committed to teaching this topic and. Two years ago, we became a state that uh, mandated Holocaust and genocide education, while at the same time, as a lot of states have done, not providing the the resources necessarily for how to do it, which is why I think these books and these workshops that we do are so critical. And one of the things that became clear over these years of working together with, with teachers is that there are incredibly motivated, dedicated teachers who want to teach the topic, but face all sorts of obstacles for how to do it. Um, it can seem overwhelming when you have a topic of this size. How do you grapple with it, you know, in a classroom that maybe in the middle school, the high school, or even the college level, it seems too big to, to tackle, especially when, you know, in some schools, you might have a day to teach it, a week to teach it, a month, or as we talk about in the introduction, in some cases, a full semester, a full year, there's such a range of time, it's hard to know how to engage with it. And I think one of the the best pieces of advice that I've heard is, first of all, to not shy away from the topic, even though it might seem difficult and overwhelming. The first thing is to please teach the topic, but to also to make sure that you have a clear lesson plan and a clear set of goals, right, for, for teaching the topic. So that if you do have just the time to teach one thing, think very clearly about what are the specific things that you want your students to take away from it. What are the goals? And there's these are some of the things that we write about in the education and in the in the introduction, and then in uh, Rob Hadley's final chapter also about sort of why it's critical to teach about this topic now. To think very clearly about what do you want your students to take away from it, um, and to make sure that you have that lesson plan worked out beforehand. 
Laura, what about you? What would you suggest the teachers just just to get this conversation started? What should teachers think about as they think about teaching this subject? Well, first, I'd like to echo what Avi said that I believe there are individuals out there who are teaching it and or who want to teach it. But there's sort of this problem that's developed in maybe the past 20 to 25 years, the sheer amount of representations of the Holocaust and information about the Holocaust and films and poems and everything you can think of, it is almost too daunting. And I think that sometimes they just want someone to say, if you want to teach about ghettos, why don't you look at this memoir? This is a really good documentary film. Like they just need a place to start because there's been this absolute proliferation of places to go to get information. So one of the things we tried to do in this volume, um, the second half is about teaching different representations, but even in the scholarly essays that are in part one, we asked the authors to talk deliberately in their essay, here's information, here's how you can impart it to a classroom or to get students engaged with the kinds of things that you are trying to teach them. So to not be afraid to use the volume as either a building block if you're starting out, but also if you're somebody who's been teaching for several years to refresh what you're doing and maybe add in some new information or some new strategies and representations for teaching. I also think it is critically important for everyone to sort of start at the viewpoint of the Holocaust, for better or worse, has become the epitome of evil, at least within the 21st century American imagination. And we can talk about how this differs maybe overseas. But because it is, has become shorthand for one of the worst things that has ever happened to humans by humans, lots of people think they know pieces of the Holocaust. And you have to sort of figure out how you're going to get past very popular, superficial understanding of the events you're going to be talking about with your students and one of the foundational elements we talk about in the intro is to tell your students right up front why it is you're teaching the topic. And to build on what Avi said, you have to have a game plan, you have to have a lesson plan, you've got to have learning objectives. Maybe those have to match up with if your state has mandated that you teach the Holocaust or and or genocide, other genocides, how that all fits together and start your unit or your course or your day, whatever you have by explaining this is what we're going to be learning about and this is why it's important to me. And I think when you share that with students, you get their buy-in in a different way than if you say, okay, we're going to be talking about X. Um, other things that we urge is for people to really think about the narrative arc, where they're going to start and where they're going to end. Um, another thing that we discuss is for people to not just use the um, extermination camp at Auschwitz as shorthand for everything that happens in the Holocaust, but to talk about what happens in ghettos, to discuss the use that the Nazis and their collaborators, the way that they use Jews as, um, as forced and slave laborers, what it is like to try to survive in hiding. So the Holocaust is so wide and so varied in terms of experiences and geographically across Europe and down into North Africa. Again, it's almost overwhelming. How do I fit all those things together? But we really urge people to not just go to, I am just going to teach about this 
one particular place and to only teach about that particular place. And if Kelly, if I can jump in for a second uh-huh. and just build yeah. on that, because I think Laura raises a really important point here, which is that oftentimes what ends up happening is we have one or two sort of texts that end up sort of being the default of how this topic mm-hmm. is is taught. And as she suggests, we're, we're hoping, yes, you know, teachers should teach about Auschwitz. It's important to teach about Auschwitz. It's, it's on the cover of our book. But at the same time, there are so many other topics to be broached, to be addressed, that we're hoping to provide resources for different ways to expose students to other aspects of the history that they may have never heard about. There is this misnomer, I think, uh, that's out there about a quote-unquote Holocaust fatigue And there's a sense that, oh, I've already learned about that, right, that you often encounter with students. And the truth is that very often they might encounter the same topic over and over and over again, or the same sort of representation or the same image or the same text, whether it's the diary of Anne Frank or Night by Elie Wiesel. And they say, well, I already did that, right? And one of the things that we hope this volume accomplishes is to introduce teachers and then by extension students to all sorts of other topics that they have never, ever learned about. I mean, on the one hand, we're talking about a a huge topic that has so much new research about it. And then ironically, we talk about the fact that often it's the same one or two things that are taught to students. So there's such a disconnect there that we hope that teachers will will take advantage of this and introduce uh, students to all the different other topics that exist. And I'll just want to add one other thing. You know, we one of the things that we also hope, and there is a tendency, is to um, sort of use the Holocaust to teach some sort of simplistic, broad moral lessons. And one of the things that we want teachers to engage with is that this, while, you know, the Holocaust has become synonymous with evil, is an incredibly complicated topic to teach. It's difficult to answer the question why. And if teachers can sort of, you know, encourage their students to think about that, there are some questions that we don't often have answers to, but that hopefully it will stimulate their intellectual curiosity to try to find those answers, then, you know, hopefully they'll engage with these difficult topics and not shy away from difficult topics, but engage with things that are difficult to answer at the same time. So each of you contributed an essay, uh, Laura I don't know how you do a collective essay, maybe one and a half essays, maybe one and three quarters, whatever the right number is. Just the first half of the book. Um, Avi, I'll start with you. Since Laura raised this question of when does when when does the subject that you're teaching end? And your essay talks about what you might call the aftermath or the end or the persistence. I don't know what the right word is of the Holocaust. So I'd like to, you to start um, talking about your essay by talking about the photograph that you um, reproduce on, on page 170. Can you describe that to the listeners, please? Sure. So um, the photo that you're referencing is a picture of uh, members of a, uh, a kibbutz, a uh, agricultural training farm organized by a Zionist youth movement. Uh, and the name of the kibbutz is Kibbutz Nili. 
And this is an unusual kibbutz because most of our listeners might be familiar with a kibbutz, which is an agricultural training farm that would be created in the land of Israel for uh, preparing for a future life there. Um, this is a kibbutz that was organized in post-war Germany. And these young people are going out to a day of work um, less than a year after the liberation of the concentration camps. And they're on an agricultural training farm that is not just any farm, but this is the farm of one of the foremost Nazi anti-Semites and propagandists, Julius Streicher, who was the editor of Der Sturmer, across the masthead of which was written, The Jews Are Our Misfortune, Die Juden Sein in Unser Unglück. And these young people are heading out for a day of work um, on this kibbutz, preparing for their future lives, they hope, in the land of Israel, but they're still very much in Germany. And uh, I talk about how this is a a picture that sort of challenges some of our preconceived notions of what the aftermath of the Second World War looks like. These are survivors just a year after liberation, but they don't look like what our students might think Holocaust survivors should look like. They are healthy. They are strong. They are happy, smiling in the picture. They are dressed in work clothes, and they are marching out for a day of work. Um, And they might be happy because they're marching out for a day of work, and they know that they have taken over this Nazi's estate, and they're exacting a type of symbolic revenge on Julius Streicher at the same time as standing trial at uh, Nuremberg, uh, going to be convicted for um, incitement to genocide. And they are, um, you know, exacting a form of, we can call it symbolic revenge, having taken over his estate. So I love this picture. I wanted to include it in the volume. It's the picture that's also on the cover of my book on Jewish displaced persons. It's called Finding Home and Homeland. Um, and as you alluded to, one of the things that I try to do in this chapter is it's a chapter on life in the aftermath Um But I also wanted us to push the chronology of the Holocaust beyond the day of liberation. That is that very often the standard narrative arcs that Laura was talking about before, you know, might begin with the Nazi rise to power um, and the seizure of power in 1933, or they might begin with Kristallnacht or the outbreak of the war, and they might end on the day of liberation. And what I want teachers to do is to think about pushing that date backwards. What happens in the aftermath? What happens on the day after liberation? How does one continue life anew? What are the most urgent questions that survivors have for continuing life in the aftermath? And how do they play a central role in rebuilding their lives after the war? And one of the things that you see in this picture with young, strong people marching out to work is they are taking agency, right? They are taking control over their own lives. They've, in a sense, been abandoned by the rest of the world. And they're saying, I'm not going to wait for people to come rescue me. I am going to take control over my own life, and I'm going to make decisions that will determine the future course of my life. And so it's a very rich picture that tells a story by itself that um, also, I think, I hope, encourages people to focus on this life in the aftermath and the role that survivors play in rebuilding their lives after the war. This material that you outline is is probably a kind of material that many high school teachers did not get when they were taught the Holocaust. So, so if you had to give kind of two or three big insights or big ideas that come out of your chapter to high school teachers that you thought were important as they prepared, what would you want them to know about 
the experience of, of survivors in, in this period. Yeah. So, you know, Laura and I, and as I mentioned in the beginning, this is a, a topic that we've both been working on for quite some time. Um, and we were at this workshop now in 2005, I think it was, on Jewish displaced persons. And one of the things that's amazing is this period on on DPs, on displaced persons after the war, has really been a growth area of research. So much new research and writing has come out on this amazing period after the war. And I would say that it's very often an overlooked period of history, this critical period of 1945 from the moment of liberation to let's say 48, a lot of survivors end up going to Israel after the creation of the state, or in 1950, a lot end up making their way to the United States. You have this critical period of a few years after the war that is remarkably vibrant. It's incredibly ironic that the probably safest place for Jews in the aftermath of the war was in the American zone of occupied Germany. And so one of the things that I think I want teachers to think about is, how did this happen after the war? What is the situation that's created? Think about the situation of displacement after the war. What does it mean to be a displaced person? What does it mean to be someone who is stateless, who is rendered stateless by the war? You no longer have the protections of citizenship. You've been stripped of the protections of citizenship after, uh, during the war itself, right? There are no countries to protect you. How does this affect the decisions that you make after the war in terms of choosing a future life for yourself? What options are available for people who are displaced or refugees? You can think about the incredible relevance of that for the present world that we're living in today. And then to think about the complex dynamics that begin to unfold between the Jewish displaced persons, who are a very small percentage of millions of other refugees, prisoners of war, displaced persons after the war, the Allied occupation authorities, both from the U.S. military and from the British military and other occupying forces, the German neighbors who, you know, were thinking about these Jewish refugees who now uh, have just been the target of extermination during the war and are now coming to live not far away from them. I mean, it's an incredible situation. And then to think about the survivors themselves, and this is one of the things that I I focus on in the chapter, their agency, right? Their resilience, their ability to determine the course of their lives after the war, to create an incredibly vibrant uh, society in the DP camps with uh, journalism and the arts and a music scene and youth movements and educational frameworks and historical commissions. It's really a remarkable testament to the resilience of the surviving population and a fascinating period of time. There's never going to be a period of time after this where you have so many Holocaust survivors living together in one place, right? It's it's remarkable. And so I think it's a fascinating period of time to study. So, Avi, that's your essay. Laura, you, you actually start yours with a poem. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read that poem uh, for us today. Certainly. This is a poem that is written uh, in the post-war period, so it is not uh, a representation that comes during the Holocaust, but after. To smuggle a loaf of bread was to resist. To teach in secret was to resist. To gather information and distribute an underground newsletter was to resist. To cry out warning and shatter illusions was to resist. To rescue a Torah scroll was to resist. To forge documents was to resist. To smuggle people across borders was to resist. 
To chronicle events and conceal the records was to resist. To extend a helping hand to those in need was to resist. To dare to speak out at the risk of one's life was to resist. To stand empty-handed against the killers was to resist. To reach the besieged, smuggling weapons and commands was to resist. To take up arms in streets, mountains, and forests was to resist. To rebel in the death camps was to resist. To rise up in the ghettos amid tumbling walls in the most desperate revolt humanity has ever known. So why start with that poem? One of the things that I try to do in this chapter, and it it was very difficult to sort of deal with both resistance and rescue and get it within Mm -hmm. in a word count. Although as an editor, I did give myself a a few, a few (laughs) extra hundred words in that chapter. Um, I think this is an excellent place, resistance and rescue to really dig into this issue I raised before about popular understanding of the Holocaust and then giving people multiple different examples of what also happened. So stories like Avi said that they might not know. It also, for people who are interested in the historiography, like how scholars have explained resistance and rescue and how that has changed over time, resistance to me is a fascinating way to really dig into that. Uh, In the early decades of people talking about resistance, it was almost exclusively armed and violent resistance. As history began to change in terms of of adding in more social history and everyday history and then cultural history in the 70s and into the 80s, our understanding of what it meant to resist, once scholars had a better understanding of what it was like to live actually in Nazi-occupied Germany or any other Nazi-occupied portion of Europe, we began to really see all of the different ways that individuals by themselves or with other people collectively could offer resistance. And so you get students to really dig in in terms of the definition of kind of what counts as resistance. Is, you know, hiding somebody for one night and taking payment for the risk that you are taking, does that count as resistance? If you are a woman who is running an illegal school inside of a ghetto in Poland, is that resistance? And what I try to encourage students to do, and I talk about this in the chapter, is rather than think of resistance as a hierarchy, rather than put it into active and passive kinds of categories, Um, I describe an exercise I do with them the day before we talk about it, where I give everybody index cards or sticky notes or whatever they want to use, and I ask them to write down something they think constitutes resistance. And then they come up and we organize them on a big desk in the front of the classroom, and they create categories of what they think fits together. And I think that is a more powerful way to get them to think about it. I talk about this in the chapter. It's come up every single time I've, I've taught this course. Students talk about whether or not, and uh, Marion Kaplan's book, Between Dignity and Despair, has a great example of this in there. She talks about uh, an older Jewish man who was a veteran of the First World War, and he's been given deportation papers. And he and his wife decide that they're going to take Veronal and commit suicide. And he dresses up in his full uniform because he wants when they come and knock on the door to find him to take him to the train station, 
he wants to say, you know, I am a German and I am someone who fought for Germany. And that's an important part of his identity. And then we get into this issue of, is suicide a form of resistance? And it really makes students kind of stop and really think about what it took to resist. And then they also have to think about defining resistance in terms of what they are resisting. Is simply surviving the Holocaust not that it was simple? Does that constitute resistance? And so I think this is a a topic that you can really dig into and you can get past really popular films like Schindler's List or Defiance and show them all of the different ways that people said, you will not take away my humanity, whether it be cultural or whether it be religious or whether it be political or whether it also be the armed resistance that does take place. And I'll ask you a version of the same question I asked Avi, which is, which is, I suspect high school teachers and, and university instructors have had some examples of resistance or, or know or have seen or whatever, but, but what, what would you want them to know, the listeners to know, two or three things about resistance other than the ambiguity and the, the importance in thinking about definitions and, uh, and the implications of definitions? Um, what did, what, what, would you want them to know that came to you as part of your thinking and process of writing this chapter? I think I would like them to understand that individuals who offered resistance um, very often did it spontaneously. So it wasn't necessarily something that they planned to do. They may have been confronted with another human being who needed assistance and they made a snap judgment. Um, I think trying to get students to understand how risky and dangerous and quite frankly illegal it was to engage in resistance is critically important. Um, Sometimes you can get uh, in a classroom people who would be like, I would have stood up against the Nazis and I would have hidden Jews. And you say to them, if you were married and you had two kids and you were going to put your life and your family's life at risk because the penalty for hiding Jews if you were in Poland was death, would you have definitely done it? And I mean, of course, they can't answer that question. I don't expect them to. But I just want the student to sit back a minute and think that resistance and rescue are rarely are so rare because they were so hard. You're asking a majority law-abiding population to break the law, and that is not necessarily easy for individuals to do. Um, I also talk in this chapter, and I give them multiple examples, and this gets back to the issue of defining resistance. Um, Very often in the historiography of resistance, uh, women get left out. That doesn't mean that there aren't women who offer violent and armed resistance, but Again, like Avi said, as scholarship on certain topics have exploded, we now know how critically important it was for women to ask, act as couriers, to act as smugglers. If you are a young male and you are out on the streets in Nazi-occupied Europe, you are automatically suspect. Whereas a woman can walk around in public, because right, she's not supposed to be at the war front, um, and even if she's Jewish, maybe pass herself off as someone who's non-Jewish, depending on her hair color and her eye color. And so 
I ask people to remember the ladies, that there are women who are involved in resistance. They're involved in cultural resistance. They're involved in smuggling. They're involved in moving of information and people. Uh, and they're critically important in terms of keeping Jewish traditions alive underneath incredibly difficult circumstances in ghettos and concentration camps and slave labor camps and pretty much anywhere that the Holocaust happened. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So there's way more in this book than we can talk about in 45 or 50 minutes. Um, but I would like to give you a chance to, to talk about essays that were particularly interesting or important to you. Um, and maybe I'll start. I know uh, each of you said that you found Jeff McGargy's essay important in, in achieving the purpose of this book. So Avi, can you maybe say a little bit about Jeff's essay and, and why you found it so, um, I, I guess I'll reuse the word important, um, sure. in, in, in the book? Sure. Um, so the first thing that I want to say, and, and when we had our, our book launch um, in September, the, the Jeff, you know, unfortunately had passed away not long before that. And um, Laura and I had the both had the privilege of getting to know Jeff quite well through our various encounters with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and having worked together with Jeff and it, it losing Jeff was a major loss for, for the field, um, but a, a major loss for anyone who had the, the privilege to get to know him. I mean, he was such a special person and uh, a real mensch in, in every sense of the word, just a, a wonderful human being and a brilliant scholar. And, uh, you know, Jeff um, was the editor-in-chief of this incredible project that the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum took on, the Encyclopedia of Concentration Camps. I mean, this was a monumental project. Um, Once, maybe not even just a a once-in-a-generation project. I mean, these are the types of projects that might happen only once in a lifetime um, and so to have a contribution from someone like Jeff, who worked on this project to document the universe, the universe of concentration camps, forced labor camps, I mean, thousands and thousands of camps that has really changed the way in which we think about uh, the Nazi system of oppression and persecution and domination and the how critical forced labor was to the German economy and the German war effort, and also the ways in which the concentration camp system functioned within the system of extermination as well. I mean, 
this is is just pathbreaking research. Um, next to that, uh, two chapters back to back, we have the chapter by Martin Dean on um, the ghettos, and same thing. Uh, Martin was the editor of. Uh, a volume that was part of this series on the Encyclopedia of Ghettos and Concentration Camps. Martin, you know, has really changed our understanding of how many ghettos there were and how many different types of ghettos. And I should say that both of these projects, the project on concentration camps and the project on ghettos, literally had hundreds of contributors to them. I mean, you you can't write an encyclopedia that, as as Martin Dean's uh, volume on, on ghettos, has over 1,100 different ghettos documented in that encyclopedia. And Jeff's encyclopedia has thousands of entries on different concentration camps. This is really cutting-edge, path-breaking research that they were able to condense into, you know, roughly five or 6,000 words in each of their chapters to talk about how important it is for teachers to understand the the scope of the Nazi system of oppression and persecution, but also that it, it's possible to incorporate that into your teaching to understand the diversity of the types of camps that were created, the types of ghettos that were created. And as Laura was suggesting, so that, you know, it's important. And, and I just wrote a book about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but I don't want people to just teach about Warsaw, right? You have to be able to teach about all of these other types of ghettos that are, were created, all these different types of camps that were created to understand sort of the, the diversity of experiences and the system of oppression that was created. Yeah, I will also say I also consider Jeff a friend. He and I have been friends for years, and his, um, his loss is a tragedy for all of us personally and, and for the field in general. And listeners, if, if you have a chance, Jeff was on the program a couple times to talk about his work, uh, among them to talk about the encyclopedia. And you can find those interviews on the website if you're interested in hearing um, about that project and, and the other things that he did. Um, Laura, the, the second half of the book is uh, specifically about ways of teaching different kinds of sources. And so I wonder if you could both talk generally about what you learned from those essays and then maybe talk about a particular essay that you found um, meaningful. Yes. So for readers who don't have the book in front of them, part two is, is sources, methods, and media for teaching the Holocaust. And our intent in dividing the book into two different pieces was the first part is lots and lots of content, scholarly, cutting edge research. And the second half is how do you teach different representations of the Holocaust? And we could have had many more chapters than what we did have, but we really had to prioritize what are the things that teachers are most likely to be using in the classroom and also to encourage them that if they've only been using one type of representation to think about pairing that with two or three others. So there are chapters in there about teaching with Holocaust diaries there's one that deals with uh, teaching with memoirs. A third in that genre is about teaching with literature. Um, Alan Marcus has a really critically important chapter about teaching with film, because I do think that lots and lots of places, um, particularly if you're pressed for time and it's not your expertise, maybe your default is, I'm going to show a film and that will explain the Holocaust. Um, Margaret Myers Feinstein has a chapter about using survivor testimonies and in interviews. 
and really walking through how you can get students to engage with those, which to echo what Avi said earlier, you know, at the Shoah Foundation where they have thousands and thousands of these, maybe they're not all accessible because they may not all be in English, but it is a chance to hear and see survivors in ways that I think uh, with my students, they always have a profound impact when they're able to actually see and hear someone. Um, there's also a chapter, uh, Danny Green has a great chapter about the exhibit that he curated through the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And Stu Abrams has a chapter about memorials and monuments. If I had to pick a chapter in the section that made me rethink what I do the most, it would be uh, Valerie Hebert's teaching with photographs. And I think very often, you know, when we teach, you know, we're all in this era where we use some kind of PowerPoint-ish slide format. We've been taught to not have 3,000 words up on the slide, but to use images. I use images all the time. And I use them in not just the course in the Holocaust, but in other courses. And sometimes I quite frankly put up an image and I intend to really do a deep dive into it. And sometimes I put up an image as something that is a segue into something I want to talk about. And Valerie Hebert's uh, chapter, I think, is going to be one of these chapters that really resonates with people because she does such an amazing job about the voyeuristic way that we use photographs, atrocity photographs in general, but also specifically about the Holocaust. And, you know, we talk about trigger warnings now in higher ed. And I say on the very first day of my class, we are going to deal with difficult things, and I will always give you a heads up. But know that when you come into this classroom, when I ask you to view something or read something outside, you will likely encounter something that bothers you. And this really made me think about how I can better present how do we view these photographs critically, but also with empathy. Um, and she just does an amazing job in that chapter. And I love the photos that she that she has in there. One in particular is a photograph of a uh, ghetto policeman and his family. And I think for some of our listeners, they might be surprised to understand that there were Jews who had a slightly elevated position, a position of power, and that they helped police what happened inside the ghettos. And sometimes post-war, individuals who might have had that slightly privileged position have difficulty explaining how they maybe took advantage of fellow Jews, or they may have profited from the misery of their fellow Jews. And to see this photograph and to really get people to understand that these are humans and to dig down deep into that, I think is going to be a very powerful exercise that educators are going to be using in their classrooms for years to come. I'll just, I'll just add on to that, that, you know, and, and I'm glad you, you did such a good job of, of highlighting all the different chapters, but I agree that this chapter on photography is incredibly important, incredibly useful. And one of the things that Valerie is able to do in that, in that chapter and, this is, as you know, sometimes when you put these books together, you have a limit on the number of images that you can include. But this is a chapter where we said we have to be able to include all of these images in this chapter. And she highlights sort of the the, the critical thinking skills that we hope teachers will be able to impart to their students, right? To think about who took the picture, 
what was the function of the photography at the time? Was it a type of voyeurism, as, as Laura alluded to? Was it a perpetrator photograph that was meant to degrade the subject? Is it a type of resistance, right? Which in some of those cases, we have uh, photographers in ghettos doing it as a type of resistance. What uh, does it tell us about the subjects of the photograph? What reaction does it elicit among ourselves? And, uh, you know, uh, Valerie has this line in the chapter that she says, turning away is tempting, but misguided. And I think in some sense, that line can also serve as a type of a, a microcosm for, you know, our approach to this topic as a whole, right? It can be tempting to turn away. It can be elicit a type of revulsion and say that, you know, this is not something that we want to engage with, but that type of reaction would be misguided. And as much as we might be tempted to turn away, we hope that folks will focus their attention on this, on this topic um, and, and teach it because it is so critical. Yeah, I was I was impressed with that chapter as well. And although it's not a photograph, it's it's a piece of art. I was reminded on my um, text on the uh, Rwandan genocide, my editor suggested this wonderful piece of modern Rwandan art that he wanted to use as a as a cover image. And I looked at it once and I said, yes, this is great. And then he wrote me an email. Oh, I don't know, a month or so later, and said. Um, said, sadly, we can't use that piece of art. I contacted the artist and, and the artist doesn't want Rwanda to be only thought about as a site for genocide. And and so he doesn't want to license us the ability to use that art. And and that was a useful reminder for me of, of how we need to recognize the impact of the art and the photographs we use on the audience and, and and what that might mean to the people who create that. Um, you did say one, and, and we're nearing the end of our time. Um, you did say one thing that I thought was interesting, and that is um, something that's addressed in pieces in these essays, but not in a specific essay. And so I thought I'd ask each of you about it, and, and maybe Avi will start with you. This can be a hard topic for students to wrestle with, and this can be a topic that... Um, we can do trigger warnings and we can be empathetic and, and, and it will still leave students um, depressed or um, withdrawn or to try and run away. So, so how do we address teaching this material from an emotional perspective, both, both from the teacher's perspective and from their student's perspective? And like I say, Avi, maybe you can start Laura can pitch in. Sure. And, and I'm glad you bring that up. It's so critically important. And it's something that that we talk about both in the introduction and that's covered in a number of the chapters, which is that we can't shy away from the fact that this is incredibly emotionally difficult, right? And, and we acknowledge how emotionally difficult it is, while at the same time encouraging you know teachers to to not use that as a reason to avoid teaching about the topic. And one of the, the strengths, I'll say, of, of, of all of the chapters is that we have contributors who, both on the high school level and on the, on the university level, are very experienced teachers. And so in many of the chapters, you will see allusions to the teaching experience of these both scholars and educators who talk about how to prepare your students for engaging with this difficult history. Um, 
And I'll say that it's critically important to prepare your students for this, right? To spend some time engaging in conversation. It might, it does break down some of the walls, right? It breaks down some of that sort of formality, but I think we have to face it head on and say that, you know, when we teach topics that are difficult topics, that are emotional topics, we have to also talk about how it's emotionally difficult for us and the tactics and the strategies that we use. We can't pretend that it doesn't elicit an emotional response. We're not machines, right? We are still humans. And that is part of the response that we're looking for. We hope that it elicits an emotional response. We want them to, our students to talk about the emotional response that, that it elicits. Um, if, if we're able to do that, then some of, as we know, some of the best learning takes place when you're able to um, elicit an emotional response. Some of those lessons that we hope stick with the students. You alluded to, you know, one of the goals of teaching this type of difficult history. And I'll, I'll just mention that Alan Marcus in his chapter on films, this is one of the things that he highlights in this chapter is that sometimes the reason that good film or good literature is able to do this so well is that it encourages students to take on the the subject position of the subjects that are covered in the film. And, and in that, it helps us to develop some empathy for the subjects, right? For us to understand the experience of the other. This is one of the things that we hope to accomplish, but then to take that what do you learn from, uh, you know, embodying or, or learning about the experience of the other? What are the lessons that you can take away from that? And so hopefully, you know, teachers will be able to engage students to think about this as emotional subject matter, to prepare them for it, but then also to think about what are the lessons that they want them to take away from this difficult subject matter. Yeah, very well said. The only thing that I would add is I think it's very important for educators to provide assignments and assessments and spaces that students can talk about how they feel about what they are seeing, what they are hearing, what they are reading. And that doesn't mean that you have to just have, you know, journal entries that are all I think and I feel, but providing time during each lesson where the educator is silent and the students are contributing, I think is, is really, really important. There is a, I don't know, I've, other people have, you know, when you teach this in your classes, there's always a sense of solidarity that you can build in a classroom. And it's critically important in terms of being an excellent teacher and having a class that be a success. When you are teaching topics like the Holocaust, it is almost easier to build that sense of solidarity. Like everybody in there comes in and they have read the first 60 pages of Christopher Browning's book on uh, ordinary men. And everybody's like, I have things to say. So I think providing them with, you know, you're not going to give them a multiple choice exam on what did you think about the beginning of this book about, you know, perpetrator violence. You're going to say, you have to show me and demonstrate that you read it but then tell me what it made you think about and have them sketch out some ideas beforehand and then provide that space in the classroom to actually to talk about it. Um, I was stunned one semester. I, I was setting up stuff and I taught two, two sections of the Holocaust back to back. And as my second group of students came in, they began to have this conversation. And out of the eight to 10 students who were already in the room, they all admitted to each other that they had chosen either 
black notebooks or black folders for that class because they knew it was going to be depressing. And I sort of had this moment where I was erasing the chalkboard and I was like, really? And then this one young woman's like, I chose this one that's bright yellow with flowers on it deliberately because I knew it was going to be so hard and I wanted to have a sense of peace before I opened it. And then we just started class from there. Like, how are you dealing with this? But that was like week two of the semester. And ordinarily, you don't have students sharing something that personal that quickly. Um, So building that sense of solidarity, giving them spaces either on written assignments or in class discussion to say out loud if they are able and they are willing the things that are in their brains, I think, helps them to process that information rather than keeping it all inside their heads. Yeah, I have a vivid memory of a student, very good student, um, telling me, walking into class one day and telling me that the previous night when she was reading the assigned reading for a comparative genocide class I was teaching, that she had gotten to a point where she had just had to sit up from her bed and throw the book against the wall and go for a run because she could not take it anymore. And I think that's one of the things, and I know many of the people listening to this are high school teachers and, and probably get more of this training in, in, in their education programs. I doubt many people who are teaching at a university level got much help in preparing to think about how to address those kind of emotional reactions uh, as we were going through our grad programs. And it is one of the really critical things about being a good teacher is to be able to meet students where they are and help them process their emotions, not just their the knowledge that they're getting. Um, and this is a particular time where that's maybe more difficult than it would have been five years ago. And so I guess I would, I would the last kind of content question for the both of you, um, and, and, and I mentioned this when we chatted earlier, um, is, and, and I think it's in your introduction where you point out some of the, the events in our world which were happening while you were editing and finishing this book. Uh, and the, the, edit, the episode of this podcast that will drop just before yours is, is a conversation with John Roth and Carol Rittner uh, about their book, Advancing Holocaust Studies, which has a optimistic sounding title, but actually is trying to grapple with a very difficult question, which is that we have been teaching the Holocaust for decades now. And yet anti-Semitism persists or, or is worsening. And there are the rise of um, regimes across the world which violate human rights. Um, your book is about teaching the Holocaust well. And I wonder what it means to write that kind of book in a world where people who have who have tried to do so for decades are wrestling with what seems to be the failure of Holocaust education. Uh, and so Avi, I'll ask you to start. Um, what, what's your response to that fear? Yeah, this is, it's a really good question. And I think it's, it's one of the, the critical questions, especially if we look at sort of our, our world here um, in 2020. And as you suggested, we allude to this in the introduction where you know we talk about the critical importance of teaching this topic now as we see you know the rise of anti-semitism as we see you know nazis marching in the streets of of charlottesville chanting jews will not replace us or 
the synagogue shooting that take, took place in Pittsburgh in October of, of 2018. Uh, there's countless examples we can point to that seem to suggest that our world and anti-Semitism and virulent forms of hatred and Holocaust denial and conspiracy theories are spreading at every level of society from the White House to uh, the darkest corners of the internet and are in uh, in in many ways, sort of um, more pronounced than than we've ever seen in our lifetimes, and so there is a tendency to say, "Well, this must mean that Holocaust education is not working, right?" and and to question the um, political motivations behind mandating or legislating Holocaust education. Um, and you know, people often point to these surveys that say, "Well." there's some sort of disconnect because on the one hand, we see states that have mandated Holocaust education, but on the other hand, we see that um, students aren't learning anything from it or that anti-Semitism continues unchecked. And what I would say is that I disagree with with that sort of thesis that um, that there's a, a causal relationship between the two. One of the things that I want to point out is that, and, and I'll say that Jonathan Ellican in the first chapter of the book, um, he talks about sort of um, teaching about anti-Semitism in the context of teaching about the Holocaust. And I think he makes an excellent and really important point that there is a tendency to oversimplify what anti-Semitism is and to see the Holocaust as the worst form of you know, state-sponsored anti-Semitism that leads to mass extermination of the Jewish population of Europe, which it was, but to see that as the culmination and endpoint of anti-Semitism. And as he points out, anti-Semitism is all too often misunderstood and has a long history and it evolves to different political needs in different places throughout history. And I think, as he points out, there's a tendency to see, if only if we could teach about the Holocaust, we could end anti-Semitism. Well, no. That type of Nazi anti-Semitism was very specific to the time and place of Germany in the aftermath of the First World War and to the way that uh, the Nazis used it to exterminate European Jewry. But the anti-Semitism that we see in the world today has many different forms used by many different political groups on the right and on the left, and it's not all the same. And so I think there's a tendency to oversimplify, and he complicates it for us, Um, and I would also say that in terms of for us teaching about the Holocaust today, you know, as I as I alluded to in the beginning of my of my remarks at this interview, here we are 75 years after the end of the Second World War. Um, the the last living eyewitnesses are passing away from the world. The survivor generation is passing away. The liberators are passing away. It's more important now more than ever to teach this history, especially because we see the spread of these virulent forms of hatred, the internet makes it so much easier to spread anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial and to spread this sort of uh, the relative question about what is truth and what is fact, right? We live in this world where it's so easy to say, well, that's fake news. And we have to stand up for our students and say, no, there are certain things that did happen. And it's important for us to learn about these things that did happen especially now when the last living eyewitnesses are passing away. Yeah, for me, this this basically breaks into, does studying and learning about the Holocaust change people? And you can look at different surveys that, that Avi has already alluded to. 
And I think that if the people who teach this and teach this well were to ask the students who had been in their classroom three to five years earlier, if it made them think not just about their humanity, but also the humanity of the people they encounter on a daily basis, I am willing to bet an over or under of more than 75%. The problem is that lots of people are asking the Holocaust as a historical topic to do lots and lots of things. They're using the Holocaust and they're saying that this is the center of our anti-bullying campaign. Please understand me clearly. Bullying is not a good thing. Uh, I have a kid who's in middle school. Um, But when you ask the Holocaust this complicated, serious event, and you try to use that to do other things with it, how does that then impact how Holocaust education is perceived? And how does that impact what students take away from it? Um, I have only read the prologue so far of this new book, and it says that they they want readers to be able to justify human existence in a threatened post-Holocaust world. I can't think of a better way to ask people living through the current crisis of COVID-19 in terms of what people are willing to do for the common good and what they are willing to sacrifice uh, for themselves in order to preserve humanity writ large. Um, I think this is a time where the information and the lessons that we teach our students from courses on the Holocaust can really have a tremendous impact. And the last thing I'll say is just because 66% of people could not identify a single camp or a ghetto doesn't mean they haven't learned about the Holocaust. As I said before, the Holocaust does not lend itself well to fill in the blanks or true false or multiple choice questions. Um, And I agree with Avi. I have a much more, I'm not going to say a rosy or an optimistic picture of where Holocaust education is going. But I think we're at a critical juncture in the next five to 10 years with making sure that the tremendous scholarship and this event, which you know Peter Peter Hayes says is the most studied event ever in human history, um, the ways to get that into conversations and into classrooms, I think, is critically important. Well, that seems an appropriate way to end. So I'll ask each of you the last question that I always ask to end interviews. Um, And that's maybe for me more appropriate now than usual, because as we talk, it's my last week of the semester. And at least in theory, my weekend is free to read something that is not immediately necessary to prepare for class right now. And so, uh, and Laura, you can start and then maybe Avi, I wonder if each of you would suggest a book or a movie or something that was important to you that you think um, the audience should read or watch or listen to uh, that was important to you uh, as as you've studied the Holocaust. Um, For me, a go-to memoir is by Ruth Kluger. Uh, called Still Alive. It's published maybe about 20 years ago. Uh, she was a young woman, in uh, a young girl in Nazi-occupied Vienna, and then she spent time in multiple different kinds of camps. She was in Theresienstadt, which was a concentration camp. She spent some time in Auschwitz-Birkenau. She also spent some time in a slave labor uh, camp. 
um, Ruth Kluger's memoir is unapologetically human and real. Um, she talks about the tensions that she has with her mom. She talks about how she views the people around her. And sometimes students read it and they're a little bit taken aback. And sometimes they're like, she's so mean. And I'm like, she's not mean. <laughs> she's just honest. And she's not painting a picture where just because a group of people was suffering, that necessarily means that they all treated each other well. Um, but Ruth Kluger's uh, Still Alive is a touchstone for me. And she just passed away, I think it was at the beginning of October 2020. So that's a touchstone for me. And Avi? So I'll mention two things in, in terms of sort of the um, things to, I, I don't know if this is going to be sort of leisure reading uh, for you, Kelly, but, uh, um, you know, things to, to think about or that are especially meaningful. And, and um, I'll men- as I mentioned before, so I, I just finished writing this book on sort of the, the afterlife of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. What ha- and you can tell I'm interested in sort of what happens immediately after. And Laura was talking before about the critical role played by women in the underground and, you know, the couriers and the, the heroism of those who played all sorts of different roles in, in helping the underground. And there's one figure in the, in the Jewish fighting organization in the Warsaw Ghetto that really just um, never ceases to amaze me. And that's Sophia Lebetkin, um, who, uh, you know, is, I think, very probably very well-known in Israel, a little less well-known here in the United States, which is one of the things that I find interesting. And she survives the the revolt and manages to escape from uh, the burning Warsaw ghetto, which is being destroyed by uh, Jürgen Stroop and the Nazis burnt to the ground. And she manages to escape with the help of a ghetto fighter by the name of Simcha Rota Merkajik. And they lead a group um, under uh, the Warsaw Ghetto crawling through the sewers for two days um, to escape from the burning ghetto. And Sylvia Lebetkin has a, has a memoir. Um, she's also been written about, but uh, in a recent biography by Bella Goodman and Simcha Rotem, codenamed Kajik also has a memoir. So these are, these are two sort of maybe lesser known memoirs that I find incredible for this sort of, um, insider perspective of the revolt and the uprising. And again, a case where people think we know everything there is to know about it, but there's always more to learn about it. And the other, the other, in terms of the genre of film that I would recommend to, to learn more about this topic is a recent documentary that's based on um, Sam Cassow's book, Who Will Write Our History, um, about Emmanuel Ringelblum, who created this underground archive in the Warsaw Ghetto, and there's a recent documentary by Roberta Grossman that's called Who Will Write Our History that uh, is incredible and tells this incredible story of the underground archive in the Warsaw Ghetto. I think it's widely accessible, um, and I would highly recommend it in terms of learning about wartime history and learning about the Warsaw Ghetto and, and maybe something that could also be used with students. We've been talking today with Laura Hilton and Avi Noam Pat about their new book, Understanding and Teaching the Holocaust, published by University of Wisconsin Press. Avi, Laura, thank you so much for your time. That was a really fascinating discussion. It's a great book. I hope uh, listeners um, go out and, and, and get it. And, and, and more importantly than that, use it. Um, 
as they think about how to communicate the Holocaust to their students. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much, Kelly. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.